This is Vertigo, and I'm Slava Borisov. In the second episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Gordon Erickson. Gordon is a born and bred New Yorker. Actually, I think he's a fifth generation Brooklynite. He is an independent film director, as well as the founder and principal of a marketing agency, which has, over the years, worked with many real estate clients in New York City. As you will hear, he is also a part owner of a neighborhood wine shop. There were a few weird cuts and blemishes in the recording, like when my Wi-Fi router decided to freeze for no reason, just as Gordon was about to answer my question about gentrification, or when Alice, Gordon's dog, wanted to add something to our discussion. Those moments had to be cut out. No offense to Alice. Anyway, here's my conversation with Gordon. Okay, so the... I mean, I would say in New York City, economic activity has dropped by about 80%. And in real estate, you know, all, all of my clients have all at least implied, if not stated, you know, they're worried about having liquidity problems because of the number of non-payers of rent. Mm-hmm. So like on, on the street that our wine shop is on, on the, on the one side of the street that it's on, just on one side, within two blocks, there are 15 storefronts. And out of the 15 storefronts, there are, I think, 13 of the stores are closed. The two remaining open being a bagel store that is deemed essential because they sell bagels. milk and groceries. Yeah, and bagels. I think in New York, bagels are essential. Yes, yes. And and wine shops and spirits shops uh, in New York in New York State were deemed essential because you can't you can't buy wine in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And I'm certain at the state liquor authority level, uh, the point was made that you know you're going to have packs of of alcoholics roaming the streets, smashing windows to try to get a bottle of vodka. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean it's a it's a valid issue that you know they're no good wine is only wine so they their clientele really aren't heavy drinkers but the liquor stores that are six blocks in either direction you know are literally essential yeah so i mean it was a little bit of a surprise to us that she she was going to get to stay open and um at first we tried to operate normally and just there, there are just so many new yorkers who are acting as though there was not a pandemic they weren't social distancing they were wanting to stand there and chat and touch bottles and so now literally we we had to dial back and dial back what we were allowing until now we've roped off the front of the store we only allow one customer inside who can't browse or get to the inventory they come up to the rope explain what they want the workers who are gloved and face masked put together their order the shopper bags it themselves and then uses a contactless payment method, Mm -hmm. you know, by tapping their credit card. And then, then other customers have to wait online outside at six feet apart. And, and we reduce the hours by half. And with all that, the shop is probably, is probably doing 50% more sales than normal for the, I think for the store, for the bodegas and bagel shops and wine shops, and a few surviving delivery restaurants, I think that the increase in sales may be permanent because in a way, in our case, we're training our customers to, to buy more. A lot of these customers are people who would buy one bottle of red wine and have one glass a night 
mm-hmm. and then come in a week later and get another one. And now they're buying three or four and they're drinking them. And it's sort of normalizing their consumption. And I think that for the stores that are open and are seeing higher sales, I think this, once this is all over, which, you know, will be a very long time, I think, it'll have benefited these few, the pool of essential stores. But sadly, I think for restaurants, even with a lot of uh, city and state aid, when at the point when there's a vaccine and no one has any COVID fears, I, I would guess at least half the restaurants in New York City will be out of business, even even with pouring you know billions of dollars into the industry, and it will be very difficult to, to you know a, a new restaurants would will have a very very hard time, I think. In the case of the existent restaurants, you know, some of them are desperately trying to provide delivery services and they changed the law so that they're now allowed to deliver alcoholic drinks with their food because that's really how, you know, an Italian restaurant loses money on, on a piece of meat. They make some money on pasta, but they really make money on wine and drinks. So there's some restaurants that are struggling to continue delivering to their customers And those are the ones that when they reopen, those customers will come back, you know, but the restaurants that have closed are, will be starting over from scratch. And it really takes years to get enough customers that you're, that you come here being profitable. You know, I mean, in New York, half of all restaurants close in their first year and another half close in their second year. And then the remaining restaurants are the ones that edge towards profitability. So about a quarter. And, And, it's it's half of a half, yeah. Hmm. A quarter of the restaurant, you know, they, they don't make it past two years. Uh, three quarters don't make it past two years. Mm-hmm. And um, the the whole problem is is just training your customers to come back on a regular basis. I mean, when 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 restaurants open here in Park Slope, there are not many there there are not many good restaurants. There there are many mediocre restaurants who have dumbed down their service and their food and desperate to try to become profitable. And every time a new restaurant opens, they're packed for the first three months because everyone goes to try them out. Right. And then I, and I see this over and over where the, the restaurateurs think they've got it made and they've got a hit. And then three months later, they're a ghost town because everyone has tried them once. And mm-hmm. if, unless they're wonderful, they don't necessarily come back. So it's 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 such a funny pattern where someone new to the neighborhood thinks they've got a, a winner straight out the box. Then they drop down a normal economic activity, which is you really kind of lose money on every meal for the first year or two because you're not you know working at enough capacity to have a profit margin. Yeah, I don't think it's anything special about Park Slope. I, I've heard the same things uh, from a couple of restaurateurs in Montreal. Yeah, the, the only reason I mentioned Park Slope is that. There, there are no, you know, Carroll Gardens and Cobble Hill and Park Slope, Fort Greene. These places had for many years, their main shopping districts were destinations. So people from other parts of the city would go to Fifth Avenue here in Park Slope because we had a lot of restaurants and stores. Mm-hmm. But now, now with all the gentrification and, and explosion of local restaurants, the foot traffic on Fifth Avenue probably is half of what it was five years ago, but the rents have not changed. So the uphill battle of opening a restaurant here is much, much greater than if you're, if you're opening in, in um, Prospect Lefferts Gardens, you know, you can get a restaurant space for $3,000 a month that here might be $12,000 a month. 
So that's a lot more burgers to sell in Park Slope. <laughs> but that's that number is definitely not going to stay at that level. No, but but the shocking thing is that, like, so Heather has had the shop for five years, and and she's seen the drop in foot traffic and the, you know, the the death of a lot of little restaurants. The the incredible thing is is that there's storefronts that have been empty for two or even three years within a few blocks of her shop. And the landlords have not capitulated on the rents yet. I saw the same thing in Montreal. Like half the uh, St. Lawrence Boulevard is boarded up uh, and they were not budging. And now, now just even last summer that some began to capitulate. There's a corner restaurant space that was a bar and I think its rent was $13,000. And for years, the landlord was trying to get that again. And, you know, six months ago, it was rented to a coffee chain that's paying 6000 You know, a huge drop in the amount wow. of rent income. I'm sure still plenty profitable for the landlord, you know. And that actually, that coffee place, um, which also is a bakery, that's one of the places that is still open. trying to hang on. Yeah, they, they're delivering coffee and pastries. And you can walk up and order, and they will hand it to you through, you know, a window, basically. Uh-huh. So there, um, but but I was always shocked at how many landlords thought they could wait a year or two and then they get ten thousand a month for a tiny little space. I don't, I can't imagine any stimulus post COVID that would restore the retail environment in New York to what it once was. I I, I see no path to filling all the stores again, even. If rents were to, you know, go down by half or more, the, the the uphill climb to having bustling commerce in in most neighborhoods, I just think is too great. I, the exception, though, I would say, there there are neighborhoods like Jackson Heights and Queens or or Bushwick, um, Broadway and. Uh, there, there, there are shopping districts where a lot of the workers are like blue collar, paycheck to paycheck workers, a lot of restaurant workers, a lot of delivery people, health, home health care aides, people who get paid in cash. And in those neighborhoods, the, you know, at all the major subway stops, there, there were very thriving retail areas where people would get off the, the subway after a work shift and they'd buy stuff in the dollar store, you know, or the deli. The, these are not high-end shoppers. They're, you know, or they, there would be discount clothing stores. There'd be places that were, had a lot of utility and you got a lot of bang for your buck. And driving around New York, you know, the, the healthiest retail environments were not in the, the fancy neighborhoods like, like Park Slope or Carroll Gardens. They were in much more, you know, commuter working class neighborhoods. Those mm-hmm. neighborhoods, I think, for one, they're still sustaining some of their essential businesses, their grocery stores and hardware stores and so forth. Those neighborhoods might have a, a real renaissance because rents will go down. You know, immigrants who are entrepreneurs will open pizza shops again and, 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 and their customers are literally people who get off the subway and live within three blocks. But like, for instance, here on Fifth Avenue, there were a dozen clothing boutiques and I just don't see, I mean, they they were all slowly going out of business one by one prior to uh, the 
coronavirus, but mm-hmm. I, I don't really understand how they can reopen those and have enough shoppers. Everyone's being trained to not, you know, to either order online or to, well, I mean, prior, prior to this, you know, I don't know, they, they'd go to Madison Avenue, they wouldn't shop on Fifth Avenue. Right. So I, I wanted to respond to two points. First of all, if you're talking about like Queens and these so-called yeah. working class neighborhoods, wouldn't the same cycle of gentrification kick in where at first these are the only survivors and then they become kind of cool and then so therefore all the young people are moving to Queens, uh, making well, that but, cool. But you're assuming, see, I, I mean, I feel like in terms of the value of buildings and condos in New York City, I don't see how they'll reach the heights they were at and rents are going to have to go down for years, I think. And a lot of developers who are midway through a building are going to go bankrupt because the luxury market was based on foreign buyers coming in with a lot of cash. And I don't know where they're going to get enough Dutch bankers and, and Chinese bankers and so forth bidding up the the market to, you know, have all these $2 million, two bedrooms. I, I just, there's going to be an outflux of New Yorkers for a while. So there won't be enough demand to really justify the valuations of the apartments. So that in turn is going to make rents go down. And so that'll stop the gentrification process because if you can get a, a good apartment at a, at a decent rent, two stops from Manhattan, you, you no longer ha- have a reason to go five stops from Manhattan. So there will be like a natural limit to gentrification. That's my gut feeling is the, the way rents were heading. Well, I mean, rents had started dropping even last summer, but not 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 by huge amounts, but people, young, young people were moving further out into the boroughs and, and renting um, housing that was more affordable. And now those same young people that would pay, you know, higher rents to, what are they, I, what do they call this category? It's sort of like natively affordable housing, basically. I haven't heard that. You know, not... Uh, yeah, it's it's not affordable housing in the sense that the city is subsidizing it or there are any requirements about rents, but there's like a category of housing that I've been reading about uh, that in effect is affordable because it's in less desirable neighborhoods that a generation ago, you know, had a lot of crime. And now, you know, New York is extremely safe and you know, kids from Ohio move here and they don't know anything about any demographics or know any reputations. And they move, you know, they all moved into Bed-Stuy five or 10 years ago, completely ignorant of that it used to be a, a dangerous neighborhood and now it's not, you know, and they utterly gentrified it because they could find apartments that where landlords had these apartments that were extremely affordable, you know, that that a a, a family of three with, two blue collar workers could afford a decent apartment near a subway station in Bed-Stuy, you know, mm-hmm. and they would be paying $1,200 for a two bedroom or $1,800 for a three bedroom. And then suddenly when you had all these kids from, you know, uh, Wisconsin moving here and, and they would say, Oh, I'll pay $2,500 for a three bedroom. And my, me and my roommates will share it. Suddenly what was very affordable housing stock, the gentrification process made it expensive, mm-hmm. you know, for people with lower incomes and who were not roommates, not shares, you know? And so 
there's there's that stock of housing that still you know still is affordable for people with lower incomes and as of the rent laws of last year it's it's now harder for landlords to get rid of them and bring kids in from Wisconsin that overpay you know so i i think that the process by which those affordable apartments that were five more stops out on the subway were disappearing i think that's come to a screeching halt mm-hmm. and it's going to go the other way where there'll be a wave of rents dropping closer and closer to places where people want to uh, commute to. Mm-hmm. But will people want to commute there? Well, that's another, I know, I, I, it's, that's another question. I don't know about commuting to, I don't know about the big commercial office space model, but I do think that people want to, people, millennials, you know, will want to walk to an office space in their neighborhood where they, where they work. If they work in an office. And if they have a job, because it's another question is what is going to, what is going to fund job creation after all, all of these shutdowns, you know, I, I'm also very puzzled about how, what will, what will drive good times again? Like what was, what is going to create high paying jobs for skilled millennials that everybody was trying to get a hold of before the, you know, virus? Well, that's a, it's a big question because before the way I understood it, New York has always been the center of finance advertising, yeah. um, the arts, media, media, yeah. and at least some of these industries are definitely not going to be the same post-COVID. I think all of the, uh, I mean, I have a lot of friends in the arts and the path back to small you know, off-Broadway theaters, off-off-Broadway theaters, comedy shows, music venues, these many of the tent poles of that whole industry were struggling to survive as it was, even with good good audiences and grants and fundraising. Mm-hmm. And they're they're all dark. And how do they restart? It is you know it's a mystery. I mean, I guess the performance arts have a lot to do with how bad it gets for the real estate industry. Because if there's enough space for theaters and you know bars that have live music and so forth mm-hmm. if there's enough cheap space like there was in the 70s and the 80s then that would be an engine for the arts to blossom again here and they were dying out because it was too expensive to run to run a theater here um broadway broadway has had banner years in the last several years just the most ticket sales and the most money ever but that's a totally different business model because it's fueled by tourism you know And will there be as many tourists in a year or two? I don't see, I don't see how that's possible either. I mean, there'll be half as many flights, you know. I mean, the number of tourists in New York is, I don't, what is it, second only to Paris or something? I mean, you, you can't walk down the street normally in, in Midtown because they're just packs of tourists with shopping bags discussing what Broadway musical to go see. I don't know what'll get all those people back. I, mean, I just read that apparently the hotel room rates were already much lower. Oh, rack, were. Rack, rack rates were significantly down over the last year. I mean, I guess it's because just, you know, the hospitality industry was overbuilt. I, I mean, that's another phenomenon in, in Midtown is there are all these, what used to be like the, the flower neighborhood where, you know, where florists sold wholesale flowers. Mm-hmm. The side streets between 7th and 8th Avenue and Broadway and so forth, street after street would have four or five hundred and twenty room hotels built in slivers. And it'd be all the brands together, you know, the Marriott's and Hilton's 
all just next to each other. And that's because they, for years, you could just build them and the, and the people would come. And then I think at some point, the number of hotel rooms got way ahead of the number of tourists. And I, I'd heard for the last couple of years that, um, you know, the average rack rate in New York had been dropping. So the cautiously optimistic silver lining in this is that the, the, the greater variety of uh, possible greater variety of uses due to lower rents could could be the. Uh... Yeah, I, I sure hope that if that were that'd be a great scenario, if the ability to open and run a business of any kind, you know, arts or whatever uh, restaurants, if all of that became much cheaper mm -hmm. in New York, I mean, I think that would drive a lot of, you know, that would drive a lot of retail and a lot of foot traffic and. But you know it's going to come out of the it's going to come out of the profits of the real estate industry. I think the the model of gentrification we've seen without enough protection for affordable housing is gentrification is simply a tool that pours more money into the into the into the real estate industry. The 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 net net result of what you know down market neighborhoods becoming fancy is commercial rents and residential rents go up and the price of condos and buildings goes up. And so it's literally taking money out of the pockets of small restaurateurs and retail stores and putting, putting it into the pockets of the people of the capital to develop and manage real estate. Mm -hmm. And that's what gentrification has done in New York. And that's because we, until last year, and, and it's still not complete, but there were very, the real estate industry spent millions and millions of dollars on lobbying in the state Senate and in city council. They were absolutely the most powerful industry. And so there are very, very weak controls, you know, by the government on, on that process. And it went on, it went on far too long. They don't seem to be getting their money worth though, because they... right. well, the reversal that the real estate industry was completely asleep at the switch. They, they, the, the turnover in the state Senate so that it became a majority Democratic. There was a block of eight Democrats that basically voted Republican and they're all voted out of office and replaced by very young progressive senators. And they immediately sponsored bills that were very punitive for the rental industry in New York. And the, what typically centrist Democrats in the Senate normally were content to, you know, not let bills like that pass, but in this sort of populist wave in the last election in 2018, everybody piled on these, these bills. So literally, you know, a week or two before this whole set of, of rent, you know, bills that control rent stabilized apartments and so forth passed, suddenly the larger landlords woke up to the fact that, oh my God, these bills may pass. And they began lobbying the governor furiously. And, and they, they literally, because they, because they were so used to years and years and years of, of inaction in the state Senate, they could have had a hand in kind of splitting the difference and getting compromises. These bills were not well written. They were written by new senators who don't really even know that much about how real estate works. They're very hard to enforce. You know, uh, they don't have a lot of detail. But they were disastrous bills for especially landlords that have a lot of stabilized uh, apartments. They're overnight, I mean, the value of their uh, apartment holdings might have gone down by half, you know. Um, but, but they just, 
they missed their chance to try to sway the, you know, they missed their chance in trying to use their lobbying power to at least get some compromises that might have, they might have had a better outcome. So like you said, the, you know, in the, in the last year, year or so, um, the, there already was a big shakeup in the rental industry. Mm-hmm. But now I, now I think it's the more luxury rentals and condos are, are going to be in dire trouble. I mean, they're already, they already were having warning signs, but now I think, you know, the whole, the whole industry is going to have to buckle down and rent their storefronts to, um, you know, puppeteers. <laughs> okay. There's, there, yeah, there's actually a uh, nonprofit theater called Dixon Place that plays, I don't know, 200 or more shows a year. And this year their programming had a lot of, had a lot of puppeteering in it. Although uh, sadly, you know, it's all canceled or delayed. But they had a they had a theme of puppeteering. Uh, my my knowledge of puppeteering uh, is based on the movie uh, being Joe Malkovich mostly. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's accurate. <laughs> Except maybe lar- larger puppets, Muppets, you know, mm. giant puppets. Well, that's good. Actually, I, I think I mentioned that name to you several times. There was this woman called Jen Jacobs uh, who used to be a New Yorker and who later moved to Toronto. And she actually wrote a lot about those kind of um, the need for different kinds of rents in the neighborhood just yes. because, you know, uh, only then different kinds of businesses and services can, can coexist. Jane Jacobs, I, I think yeah. she, moved to, she moved to Toronto. I never knew that. Uh, yeah, huh. she was um, – I don't remember if it was 100% because of that, but she had a draft-aged son who was uh, uh, obviously, you know, about to be drafted for, for boy, the, that part of her career. I never knew about that's very interesting. I mean, her vision of the her vision of the mix of, 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 of retail and different kinds of people living together in the same neighborhood is, I still think a desirable model for New York and has been unwound year after year by by the real estate industry. I will I will mention one interesting little thing, though, in, in our neighborhood, maybe 10 blocks from here. Um, there's there's one side street that each building that has four or six apartments in it, each building has a little shop on the ground floor, and and sort of spreading out from that one block. If you go around the corners, there's a healthy little district of fancier stores, and the reason that is is there's a, a, a landlord who owned a hardware store since the '60s who slowly bought up all of these properties within two or three blocks of his hardware store. And that landlord has always kept his storefronts filled at whatever rent he could get uh, in order to keep the net group of his properties flourishing so that the rents in the apartments would increase. Mm-hmm. And so that one landlord probably didn't read Jane Jacobs, but because this sort of one landlord with a lot of small properties cared about not having empty storefronts on the blocks that he owned, he created sort of this mini Jane Jacobs neighborhood that still had a, a ridiculously wide variety of, of options for the people who live nearby. And I wish that, I mean, if only there were more landlords that thought that way instead of maximum, you know, this guy has no banks, you know, it's, it's, he really seems to have dedicated the, the, the properties to retail and restaurants. I read something, um, uh, something like an explanation for that uh, phenomenon. That if you if you split up properties into like smaller lots and sell it to different investors, they will try yes. to like leverage to the maximum and get the most profitable 
use for each. And they don't care about their neighbors, right? right? Or the neighborhoods. So yes. optimizing it individually, they will get the same uh, chain stores and you know chain yes. uh, restaurants or yes. boutiques, the opposite of what the neighborhood would need. So so like only if you let one guy control the whole block, yes. um, only then will you get like the optimum choice. Right. Or or if you have commercial rent control, like like London, or if you take away the tax benefits of having an empty storefront, I mean, the, right now you, if you have an empty commercial space, you're allowed to apply losses to your income, you know, and they created benefits for landlords in the 1960s and 70s to keep them from burning down their buildings. You know, they said, all right, if you can't fill your store because your neighborhood is blighted, at least hold on to it and we'll give you a, a tax break for keeping for keeping your building functioning so that someday maybe you'll be able to rent it. That structure still exists in New York and it shouldn't. I, I think that if you can't get $13,000 a month for your corner store, you know, then you got to lower it to 10 or to eight or whatever it takes to fill it in 12 months. And then if you don't fill your space in 12 months, I think forget not being able to deduct your losses. There should be a, a, a penalty for landlords that leave their retail empty. I mean, that would revolutionize the city. Mm -hmm. And there were, there were rumblings of that last year, but uh, who knows, you know. It's amazing how much a simple change in tax policy, uh, yes. what physical effect it has on the city. Yes. In Montreal, there was for, for years, they had um, downtown had these huge parking lots because it was cheaper to simply... Right. In, in some cases, uh, landlords actually demolished perfectly fine, functional, and beautiful buildings to put like nothing there for 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 decades. And it was because uh -huh. you know there was a really low tax on on land, so you could just keep it right. at the minimum level. Idle, yes, like an idle field in uh, yeah in a farm. I guess the main points really are that the real the the way our city was structured, it allowed real estate to undermine the quality of life because they could maximize their profits and. And now this is a, hopefully a reset where there's an opportunity to, you know, bring back some of the good things about New York without some of the bad things that we had, at the, you know, without drugs and crime. That's the big question. Yeah. I, I often wonder also because of the way these financial um, arrangements are made, whether you can just dial back something or is it like more like a ratchet where you cannot really go back, but you have to. Well, I think there'll be a lot of bankruptcies. That's for sure. I mean, I think there, there are going to be a lot of landlords underwater who there'll be fire sales of buildings and the banks will take them and sell them off for pennies on the dollar to get their mortgage money back. And then the new owners will have way more latitude to do whatever they want with them. You know, even if it's like a high rise, uh, 40 story building you know, that that's, I, that sort of finance is more confusing to me than, you know, the street level retail. I, I, I assume that the same, the model at the, at the down, at the lower end of the market has to work in the upper end too, where somebody has to restructure their financing and they can't get the financing they need because they're never going to get the square footage price that their whole thing's predicated on. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it, Jared Kushner and 666 Fifth Avenue, mm -hmm. you know, that they bought that at the top of the market and, you know, there's no way they'll ever get a thousand dollars a square foot for office space again. There's got to be dozens of buildings like that. Do you think some of the uh, zoning regulations will be revised after after this? Well, 
what would that i mean what do you mean more specifically can one just simply start mixing um office and residential and maybe even light uh, light industrial just freely within the same lot or it's not likely that's an interesting question i mean there already are examples of that you know like an industry city and navy yards and 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 i think that and i think those occurred because they rezoned those areas to encourage development but i don't know about these are six or eight story buildings that are on acres of land as opposed to you know high density vertical buildings mm-hmm. i don't I, i i don't know the answer to that one i mean <sighs> that's okay i don't i didn't expect you to have all the answers yeah, i just yeah. wanted to <laughs> bring up the the possibility but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, i just hope that this let's new york reset to uh a more progressive vision of like what uh, what a neighborhood should be well listen i i, I think we've used up your uh, <laughs> the a lot of time and the uh, alice is getting restless too so uh i think yes. i'll i'll just thank you for the uh, for the time and uh, for your opinions which are always interesting and hope to speak to you maybe in a month or two on different Great. set of topics uh, that'll, that'll be fun to do thanks for having me Slava, and i look forward to talking to you next month okay great take care